Good morning. I'm Jackie Boat, and I have the privilege to read the scripture today. And if you want to follow, it's on page 812 of your Pew Bibles. And this is Matthew 7, 13 to 27. Enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction. And those who enter by it are many. For the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life. And those who find it are few. Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will recognize them by their fruits. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? So every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, and can, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus you will recognize them by their fruits. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Here's these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell, and the floods came, and the winds blew and beat on that house, but it did not fall, because it had been founded on the rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. And the rain fell, and the floods came, and the winds blew and beat against that house, and it fell, and great was the fall of it. Let me just pray for us one more time, and then we'll uh, jump into this passage. Jesus, uh, there's been a lot already this morning, so would you come and help us now? Would you settle our hearts around your word? These are your instructions to us about what it means to be in the kingdom of God. You have a clear warning and invitation and perspective to give us in ways that would orient our hearts, it would challenge us, but it would also like heal us and rescue us and save us if we heard your voice. So I just ask that you would open up our hearts this morning, that by your spirit you would speak to us in ways um, that are particular to where we are individually, um, that are actually profound in its impact in our heart, and that actually move and change us even this morning. So we want long-term change for sure, but God, would you meet us now? Our, Our hearts are often weary, our minds are full of doubt and frustration, even to speak of other people with trauma. There's people in the room with trauma. So there's a lot of needs. Holy Spirit, would you come and would you meet those as we talk and as we engage? We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, hey, if you're visiting with us, we are in a series on the Sermon on the Mount. We're actually in a larger series through the Gospel of Matthew. It's Matthew's theological and historical account of the life of Jesus. So we started actually last December. Uh, We're only now just in chapter 7. We've been slowing down through these last couple of chapters because it's a sermon Jesus gives about what it means to be in the kingdom of God. Who's invited in the kingdom of God? What are the ethics of the kingdom of God? What does it mean to actually respond to Jesus 
as king. And we said last week, as he comes to the end of his sermon, he's doing what every good pastor should do. He's calling for a decision. He's calling for application. He's calling for you to make a choice. And we said it's not enough just to simply appreciate the wisdom of Jesus or the ethics of Jesus or kind of his heart. You actually have to see him as king, and he invites us to respond to him as such. So, so there's this invitation, and actually what we're doing is reading this one invitation that Jesus says four different ways. He uses four different pairings. Last week we looked at this uh, two different gates or two different ways. Today we're going to look at two different kinds of trees. Next week we'll look at two different kinds of decisions or hopes, like are you putting your hope in on what you know and what you do or on your relationship with Jesus, and then we'll look at two different foundations. But he's really saying the same thing over and over again in ways that actually draw us to a place where we can choose and decide, and he wants you to actually make a choice. Jesus is not after just informing you or inspiring you. He wants to save you. He wants to encounter you where you are and give you what you need, but it's not on your terms. It's not as if you can just say, this is what I need and what I would like from Jesus, and add that to what you're already doing, as if he just gives a more enlightened or a more relational or more personal or or more historic way of doing that. Jesus demands as the king our allegiance. He demands our utter allegiance to him and to no one else. And we just said last week, like in our modern sensibilities, that that kind of grates against a lot of what we're trained to think the rest of the week. The rest of the week, we're actually called to be inclusive, to to think diversely, to value different perspectives. And, And of course, we want to do that, right? Value people, be kind, think about people in ways that actually humanize them. But when we apply that to issues of faith, we can get confused. And so Jesus just doesn't want us to be confused. Last week he said, the way to God himself is through me and me only. There's a gate that's the shape of Jesus that you have to go through to get on the narrow way to be a part of his kingdom. And then this morning, what he wants to do is say to us, at the crossroads of those roads, of the broad path and the narrow road, There always stands somebody to help you interpret what's on those roads. The connection to false teaching is actually an invitation for us to stop and go, wait, what voice am I listening to? Am I listening to a voice that exalts Jesus, that tells me he's king, that tells me I should orient my life around him? Or is it a voice that puts Jesus more in this kind of mascot or cheerleader role where he's really for me and he's excited about me and he wants me to be happy and fruitful and flourish and he wants me to kind of engage the desires of my heart in ways that I would be satisfied on my own terms. There's someone that stands at the crossroads between the broad way and the narrow way and wants to interpret for you what's valuable, what's important, and how you actually get on those roads. And Jesus is going to call them false teachers. There is a historic, ancient liar we have as the evil one, the enemy of God himself, that from the very beginning has been lying to God's people. He's the original false teacher telling us a different kind of understanding of who God is and what he's like and calling us to a different kind of decision, one that would take matters into our own hands and actually see us as autonomous, see us as really powerful, see us as really wise. And Jesus comes and says, oh, I'm the one who is powerful. I'm the one who is wise. And you get to, and you have to respond to me. So, so it's at that space here, right at this crossroads. Jesus wants to give us a warning, and he wants to warn about false prophets, about false teachers. We're just going to focus on verse 15 through 20 
this morning. Let me just read it again for us. He says this, Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ravenous wolves. You will recognize them by their fruits. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? So every healthy tree bears good fruit, and the diseased tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown in the fire. Thus you will recognize them by their fruits. Jesus wants to give us a warning as he's inviting us that there's another kind of narrative. There's another kind of impersonation. Uh, personation, another kind of interpretation that we can actually receive, and he calls it a false teacher. So here's what I want to do. I want to walk through this passage, and we'll talk about the nature of false teaching. We'll talk about how to identify false teaching. We'll talk about the future that false teaching leads towards, and then we'll talk about how to protect from false teaching. So, so first, this nature of false teaching. Look back with me in verse 15. He says this, Beware of false prophets. They come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ravenous wolves. The nature of false teaching, Jesus says, is it's by nature first deceptive. It doesn't present to you what it really is. It comes like a wolf, but in sheep's clothing. Now we should stop here for a second and say, Jesus, I don't think has in mind like other world religions, other claims to truth. He has in mind a religious version that would claim to hear from Yahweh, that would claim the Bible to be true or at least mostly true that would claim to understand the historic God of the Bible, of the Old Testament, and actually now wants to twist and distort. It's not necessarily other faiths. These false prophets throughout the Scriptures are people that claim to actually hear from God. And the first thing Jesus says is the nature of these is that they are deceptive. There's something that's not upfront about them. And you can just stop for a moment and think about your life. Every addict, everybody who has shipwrecked their life in an affair, Everybody who's lost their job because they did something inappropriate. Everybody who's faced some sort of hardship didn't start by thinking, if I take this one little step in five years, this is where it's going to end up. That'll be fantastic. I would love to shipwreck my life. I'll take this first step. No way. It's always just you're entitled to this. This will comfort you. You you need this. You deserve this. This is what everybody else is doing. Everyone would understand. That's always the first step down a pathway that leads to your pain. Uh, False teachers don't wear signs that say, beware, I'm a false teacher. I'm going to blend kind of what you already want and desire with a sinful motivation with the word of God that's going to deceive and destroy you. They don't wear that printed on their shirts. He's saying it's by first deceptive. And that actually means then we should be aware. Because it's deceptive to touch on passions and desires and things that we long for, things that we think we're entitled to. Every sin has like a logic to it. It appeals to you as a reasonable person coming to you saying, this is something, again, that you deserve or need or that you've, that you've earned. And everyone would understand if you were to take matters into your own hands. And in fact, they might even applaud you. You might actually gain something from that. Jesus says, hey, beware of false teachers They come posing as one of you, as a sheep in the herd, but they're actually wolves. They're they're first deceptive, and then he says they're dangerous. They're not just like nice little dogs that you want to pet and cuddle with. He says they are ravenous wolves. False teachers that present as 
kind or enlightened or, or influential, people that you actually might want to be like. You read their blogs or their tweets or you follow them on Instagram and you see in their words something that's inspirational, something that soothes your heart, something that makes sense and appeals to you. And so you're tempted just to kind of follow down that line of thinking, follow down that line of logic. But he says what's actually happening is not just something that's deceptive. It's actually really, really dangerous. We're, we're dealing with actual life and death. We're dealing with eternity, actually. Because what's on the line, Jesus said last week, is that if you blend Jesus' claims with what you already believe, what you already want and long for, you are on the broad path. It's easy. It makes sense. Everybody else is on it. It's actually the path of least resistance, but it ends in destruction. So, so the danger is not so much just the next step or the next step. It's what happens down the road. And Jesus says the nature of false teaching is that it's first deceptive and it's also dangerous. And I just try to think about, okay, where do we see this in Scripture? What does it look like? What does it sound like in Scripture? Because we see these warnings actually throughout the Scripture. And it seems like there's two main categories of false teaching. One says that God is asking more of you than he really is. And then one says God is asking less of you than he really is. It's, it's a legalism, kind of do it by yourself. God's not pleased unless you're perfect sort of doctrine. And the other one is one of, hey, it's a one of grace, one of love and charity, and, and God's actually asking way less of you. It's one that actually exaggerates mercy and kindness, and in the name of love, confuses what it means to actually follow after God. There's, there's a kind of false teaching that is asking more of you, and there's a kind of false teaching that's asking less of you. Let me give you some examples. If you go to the Old Testament in Jeremiah, like in Jeremiah chapter 6, you'll see that God is actually calling his people to repentance. They've rebelled. They've blended their lives with other gods around them. And he's saying, I love you too much to leave you confused in that place. I am sending judgment. There's been plagues. There's been famine. There's going to be a warring army that's going to come. He's actually saying, if you don't repent, I'm going to take you off into captivity because I can't leave you in the promised land thinking everything is fine, thinking you can blend me with all the other gods of the surrounding cultures because if you do that, this road ends in destruction. So actually, out of love, God says, I'm going to judge my people so they can see what's actually happening. They can actually turn and repent because you normally don't repent unless something bad is going on. So I've nursed like a bad back for a super long time. It comes in and out of season for me where it will be incredibly painful and then sometimes it's more tolerable and sometimes I feel fantastic. Let me ask you just to guess when I do my back exercises, when when I'm most thoughtful, when, when I actually am most careful. It's not when I'm feeling awesome. It's when I can barely move. I'm like, oh gosh, that's right. I have to do right. So, so pain is actually an indicator. Oh, do you need to do something different? So, so in the Old Testament, we see these prophets saying, hey, God is coming in judgment because he loves you and wants you to turn. Even that like, just doesn't kind of make sense to our modern sensibilities, right? So to say, I'm going to submit to King Jesus and to submit to one who's so for my sanctification, he wants all of me to be redeemed. He's going to leave no stone unturned. He's even willing to use things like discipline to reach my heart. But in that day, as Jeremiah is saying, God is coming in judgment, there are false prophets that they say over and over again, peace, peace. And one of the judgments in Jeremiah is to those false prophets saying, you keep telling my people peace, peace, when there actually is no peace. 
You keep treating their wounds like they're just surface wounds, but these are actually deep, deep wounds. These are false prophets that were saying, hey, God isn't demanding holiness from you. You're God's people. You're in his city. You're the one who's kept his covenant promises. God loves you. He's for you. We don't have to change. We are God's people is what the false prophets say. In Lamentations, we see a real similar move there. And in the same space, he says, you keep saying peace, peace, but you don't deal with the iniquity of my people. Well, that's not a very modern, sensible word, but he's saying my people actually have sin in their life, and me as a holy God can't allow that they have to turn and repent. And we come to a passage like in Ezekiel. In Ezekiel, it's, a, it's another kind of contemporary. It's fascinating the way Ezekiel kind of walks through what it means to these false prophets, what they're actually promising, and what it actually has an impact for in their lives. So this is Ezekiel chapter 13. He says this in verse 1. He says this, The word of the Lord came to me, said, O son of man, prophesy against the prophets of Israel who are prophesying and saying to those who prophesy from their own hearts, Hear the word of the Lord. That they From their own hearts are saying, Hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord God, Woe to the foolish prophets who follow their own spirit. They, they look inward to themselves for direction and insight, and they see nothing, he says. Your prophets have been like jackals among ruins. They're just like these little dogs that are jumping all over ruins. You've not gone up to the breaches or built up a wall for the house of Israel that it might stand in battle in the day of the Lord. He's talking about foundations. You haven't actually done the hard work of rebuilding and engaging in what was broken. You haven't actually, in those spaces, done what needed to be done at the foundation level. Verse 6, it says, And they've seen false visions and lying divinations. And they say, declares the Lord, when the Lord has not actually sent them. And yet they expect Him to fulfill their word. Have you not seen a false vision and uttered a lying divination whenever you have said, declares the Lord, although I have not spoken. These are false prophets that say, we speak from God. Everything is fine. And we look at the walls around us and they are crumbling, but it's, but it's fine. And then in verse 8 he says, therefore, thus says the Lord God, because you have uttered falsehood and seen visions, therefore, behold, I am against you, declares the Lord. My hand will be against the prophets who see false visions and who give lying divinations. They, they shall not be in the council of my people, nor be enrolled on the register of the house of Israel. They're, they're not from me, nor shall they enter into the land of Israel. You shall know that I am the Lord your God. Precisely because they have misled my people, saying peace when there is no peace. And because when the people build a wall, these prophets, they smear it with whitewash. They, they cover over what's actually broken. What a vivid imagery, thinking about the foundations that we should build our house on. So they just actually whitewash it. They just paint a crumbling wall. These prophets smear it with whitewash, and they say to those who smear it with whitewash that everything is fine. It shall not fall. There will be a deluge of rain, and you, there will be great hailstones that come, and it will fall, and a storm wind will break out when the walls fall, and it will be said of you, there was a coating which, which you smeared it, but it did nothing. Therefore, says the Lord God, I will make a stormy wind break out in my wrath, and there shall be a deluge of rain in my anger. Can you think about this foundations, this house of rock and house of sand that Jesus is talking to in a little bit? He kind of has this in his mind. I'm going to send this storm to you, and I will break down the wall that you have smeared with whitewash and bring it down to the ground so that its foundation will be laid bare. And when it falls, you shall perish in the midst of it, and you shall know that I am the Lord your God. 
Thus I will spend my wrath upon the wall and upon those who have smeared it with whitewash. And I will say to you, the wall is no more, nor are those who smeared it. Okay, this is pretty intense. These are people who are saying, hey, we're basically okay. God's pretty chill. That was an old way of living. You don't actually have to follow God's commands. There's a kind of false teaching that says to you, God is actually asking less than you thought he was. So you read a verse about forgiveness of enemies, and the false teacher goes, you don't actually have to do that. That's crazy. You should protect yourself from your enemies. You read a verse about generosity, and a false teacher comes and says, hey, man, like, make sure you're saving for retirement. Make sure you're keeping what's yours. If anything left over, sure, be generous with that, but, but you don't have to actually have a heart of generosity. God doesn't actually demand that of you. And you can go down to sexuality. You can go down to faithfulness. You can go down to any category you want. There's a kind of false teaching that says, hey, everything's fine. God's gracious. He's good. It's an exaggeration of God's grace without an understanding of his holiness. That's one kind of false teaching. The other kind of false teaching is actually asking more of God's people. So, so we see in Matthew chapter 23, just a few chapters later in this book, we'll see that Jesus will actually give an indictment to the Pharisees. And he says they sit in the seat of Moses. So he says, listen to them as they speak God's word, but, but don't do what they do because they're not applying it correctly. And he says they actually tie up burdens on people's shoulders and they kind of entrap them with heavy burdens. And he says they go and they go make proselytes, they go and convert people, but then they make them twice the sons of hell as they were before. They put extra laws, more legalistic things on their shoulders. So that's another kind of false teacher. And I would guess based on your background, your trauma, your wounds, your personality, your experience, what you aspire to be, you fall prey to one of those two more than the other. Maybe you grew up in a really rigid situation, and so the idea that God's demanding less of you just touches your heart. You go, man, if I could have everything I ever wanted and Jesus, that makes a ton of sense. If I don't actually have to change or respond, I don't have to actually live a holy life, man, this is great. I can actually be able to do this. And maybe you grew up in a situation where where it was just chaotic. There, There weren't any boundaries. And there's some sort of leader or teacher that comes, and they don't just teach you the Bible. They teach you lots of extra things. Of course, trust Jesus, but also do these things. And if you do these things, then God will love you. And it has this vigorous, rigorous approach to life. And maybe that appeals to some of you. I think those are kind of two main approaches of false teaching. And Jesus is saying the problem with those is that they are deceptive and they're dangerous And they're not actually the heart of God. Because the heart of God pulls together both grace and holiness. Mercy and wrath. It calls us to obey, but actually accomplishes for us the forgiveness we needed for when we haven't obeyed. And Jesus pulls both things together. God's righteous, holy law and the keeping of his righteous, holy law as he dies in our place on the cross to satisfy God's righteousness and holiness doesn't stop there, though. Then he says, and now come be like me. Now come and live your life this way because it's a life of freedom and flourishing. Right? Life in the kingdom is not a restrictive ethic. It's something that actually is big sky that opens up your heart and invites you to something deep and real. So there's two kinds of false teaching, one that asks less, kind of a licentious approach, and one that asks more, kind of this legalistic Approach And in the middle of those false teachings, some of the deceptions have to do with who God is. Think about, again, this original false prophet, Satan himself, back in the garden. God has set up 
kind of paradise for them. He's put them in relationship. He's set them up in the garden and he's given them a boundary not to eat the fruit of the tree of life or the tree of knowledge of good and evil in that space, right? And in that spot, what happens is Satan comes and begins to twist. And here's the things he asks. Did God really say that? Is God really like that? And don't you need more than what God has already offered you? I think the core of these false prophets is, did God really say that? Is God really like that? And don't you need more than what you think you actually have now? Those lies take root in our heart, and they set us up to kind of go after things that would then begin to harm and destroy. And Jesus says, oh, beware. Hey, beware of these kinds of lies. They're deceptive, and they are really, really dangerous. Okay, so then let's talk about how do you identify them. He says, beware of them. And then in verse 16, he tells us how to recognize them. He says, you will recognize them by their fruits. Not just by their words, but by what happens on the outside. And he says there's multiple kinds right there. There are grapes, but they're not gathered from thorn bushes. And there's figs, but they're not gathered from thistles. There's a kind that actually engages of a false teaching that actually bears fruit down the road. It's God is patient. It takes some time to develop. But these things actually are identified. There, there's evidence of them, right? These things that actually take root in our hearts, they, they bear fruit. And he's saying they're, they're of a certain kind, and this is the way it always works. Thorn bushes don't bear figs, and grapes don't come from thistles. That actually is the DNA of that plant, won't allow it to actually produce something false. And so Jesus is inviting us to actually evaluate the life and the doctrine and the influence of the teachers that we are listening to. Hey, and in this space and age, what's so crazy is that we hear people's voices but never get to see their lives. The internet has made it possible for you to get a whole bunch of ideas and not be able to ask, hey, what's actually happening in that person's world? What, what actually takes place in their personal relationships? That thing sounds amazing, but you don't get to see what's actually taking place. So there's this like caution for us in this particular kind of way in the world that we live in where everything feels virtual and online. I think God can still speak to us about what is true, but there's this space where maybe it's a little bit harder to know what actually is the fruit that's being born from these ideas. Because you don't get to come up next to some of these people that you read their blogs and you watch their tweets and you actually engage in their Instagram feed. And what's really fascinating is the way Jesus will talk about what's being produced as healthy or not healthy, often for us is pretty skewed. We have so absorbed the patterns and values and loves of the world that we esteem things like influence, outward beauty, wealth and success. We, we see those things and call that really good. We see somebody that is, has a, a ton of followers, somebody that's making a, a lot of money, somebody that's really influential, and we say, man, that is what is good. And you just absorb that in your heart all the time. So when Jesus comes and says, hey, you can tell a tree by its fruit, and a, a bad tree can't produce good fruit, and a good tree can't produce bad fruit, we have to stop and say, is my grid for what is good actually rooted in the kingdom of God? Or is it possible the false teaching has so taken root in my heart that my even very grid for what I'm asking God to do, what I'm aspiring to as a man or as a woman, what, what I long for, is that more influenced by the world than it is from the kingdom of God. Because remember, Jesus does these remarkable, provocative, counterintuitive things like the Beatitudes. 
that says, hey, the ones that are blessed are the ones that are weak, the ones that mourn, the ones that are poor, the ones that are hungry for righteousness, even the ones that are actually taken advantage of, those are the ones who are blessed. And so Jesus will talk about fruit that we can see, but we just have to own being kind of in our modern culture, in our country, where we live, in, in an urban setting, that your grid for what is good is probably askew. Just examine your heart for a second. What is it that you're most excited about? What is it you're saving for? What is it that you fear losing? What is it that you tell yourself, man, one day I will have blank and then I will have arrived? What, what are those things? What are the things that you are longing for? And, and are they kingdom of God, God exalting things, or are they things that would exalt you? Because false teachers say things about God, and things about what you deserve, and things about what God has said. And you have to ask, the fruit of following this person, is it helping me treasure God more? Or is it getting God off my back and giving me a little more space? Is is following this teaching and this idea, living towards this author's vision of flourishing, is it actually diminishing God's role in my life or is it increasing it? Or is God now more manageable and he's cheering me on, I'm really thankful for having his comfort, but I'm not actually asking what does he demand of me and orienting my life around that. Is that teaching making you more confident in the heart of God? Or is that ancient lie that God's holding out on you, that if God put this boundary in place, he's taking from you? Like, do you find yourself more suspicious of God when it comes to his power or to his love or the way he sees you, the way he sees the world? But those come from voices that you have been listening to. And so you can just ask, what is the fruit of this teaching? Is it exalting God as the biggest thing in the universe that you get to orient your entire life around? Or is it diminishing his voice and elevating your preference? When it comes to his word, are you, are you more confident in what he has said? When you read his word, are you more eager to follow it? Or, or do you find yourself editing, adjusting, modernizing some of those things? Do you find yourself actually taking the commands of Jesus that are orthodox and ancient and reliable and, and saying those just don't fit my modern world anymore? We know more about science and the brain and personalities and gender and identity and so because we know those things surely now we read back into the scriptures and we edit that voice just stop for a second what is the fruit of the voices that you're listening to is God bigger or are you bigger are you eager to hear his word and adjust around it or are you editing his word and are you are you loving and trusting his heart it's so mysterious right we're just a couple sections before this he's talking about asking in God's name and he gives you things that are heavy and not believing that they're actually stones. And he's asking for things and he gives you something that feels really scary but not believing that it's a snake. Or, or is your heart really quick to blame God, doubt God, push away from God? Jesus is saying, hey, you can tell the fruit of a false teacher by the, the things that are being produced. And right, A healthy tree bears good fruit, but a diseased tree bears bad fruit. And a healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. So stop, friends, and ask, what is the fruit being produced in your life as you listen to these different voices? What does the blog post tell you about what you deserve and are entitled to? What does actually the books you're reading tell you would make you happy? What, what is the vision of flourishing that you're swiping 
left and right on? What are the things that actually put in front of you? And are they stirring your affections towards God? Because the way the Bible talks about the heart, it's like roots. And it's from the heart that things are produced. That's the metaphor that Jesus is using here. So he goes from, from wolves to trees. But he's making the exact same point. He's saying it's from the heart that these things are produced. And so we'll see the same language in two places in Matthew. One is in Matthew chapter 3 with John the Baptist. He's baptizing people and calling them to repentance. And there are Pharisees and religious leaders that are coming forward. And and he actually says, you brood of vipers. He calls them snakes. Not wolves, he calls them snakes. But those are pretty similar in this situation. He says, you brood of vipers, who warned you to come here? And then he says, would you rather actually bear fruits in keeping with repentance? Not just doing religious rituals on the outside. Would you actually have your heart changed and transformed from the inside? And then Jesus will talk in Matthew 12 again to these same religious leaders. And he'll say to them, your, your heart is hard. You're producing fruits that aren't in keeping with repentance. The things comes out of your mouth. It's the abundance of the heart that you're actually speaking. It's from the core of those beliefs that things are flowing out of you that are actually dishonoring to God and dangerous and deceptive. So it always comes out of the heart. And it's from that place that Jesus is offering actually to renew our hearts. Right? Repentance actually renews and changes us from the inside out. He's not saying something now different than salvation by faith alone, through grace alone, and Christ alone that actually would transform you. He's not saying fix your own heart. He's saying come and trust me. Because the scriptures are calling us to actually see Jesus as our only hope, our exclusive only hope. And in that space, what we see is that we begin to change and be transformed. Our affections begin to change and be transformed. Our understanding of God changes and is transformed to better align with what we see in his word, what we see in his heart, what we see with what he's always done. It's a call to actually have your heart renewed in other places. But but the effort or the impact or the evidence of it is what's happening on the outside. So you should just stop and say, hearing the voices that you're listening to, are you looking more like Jesus? Are you loving what Jesus loves? Are you trusting his heart more and more? Or is it possible that you've gone down a deceptive road and began to hear things that were really comforting to you, they're really affirming to you, they made a ton of sense to you, but they actually have not begun to produce the kinds of fruits that would draw your heart closer to God? I think that's a pretty helpful litmus test of what's happening inside of us. Do you love God more? Are you trusting his voice more? Are you wanting to be more like him? Is that actually what's taking place? And here's the deal. I think this fruit inspection is actually a community event. I think it's a communal activity for us to come alongside each other and to help each other and to speak into those worlds. We're often reading things and seeing things that are online and away from community, but we actually get to live with flesh and blood in real life. And so to actually welcome people to ask, hey, as you watch my life, am I driven by the glory of God? Or is there something else driving me? Do you hear me hearing his word and wanting to obey and follow it? Or do you see me explaining it away and editing it? When it comes to my loves, are they, are they matching the things that you see in the scriptures? Or are they actually placed somewhere else? Could they actually be a voice from somewhere else that's telling me something else would make me actually happy? So, so we kind of skew our understanding of what good is. It's a call just to kind of self-reflection. But it's not self-reflection in a vacuum. God has actually spoken to us. God's actually given us his word to know what actually good fruits should be born and what what things we should be actually producing. So so identification, 
Jesus is saying, you can tell what the teaching is by the fruit that it's producing. In this whole Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is calling you to treasure God as the biggest and most beautiful thing in the universe. And to the degree that you are treasuring something else, I think Jesus' warnings need to come to you and hit you to say, oh man, there's probably places where you've heard a false teacher telling you things that you wanted to hear that puts you on the broad path, and you could repent. You can turn away from this. Even this morning, God's calling you to actually turn away and turn back to him and to hear the one true voice of God himself. So, so that's how we identify. It's like what's being produced, right? The life, the doctrine, and even the influence of people around, like with the people that follow these teachers, what's happening inside of them, right? Fruits of the Spirit are born in our own hearts, and then we see people impacted by the things that we do. What's, what's happening around you? I have a friend who's a counselor slash mentor slash coach, and he says, he says, the evidence is always in the relationships. The proof is always in the relationships. How healthy are the relationships? That's the barometer we're going after to say, is my heart tied to God or is it tied to myself? Is it tied to something that I'm actually pursuing or is it actually being directed by God himself? So, so there's how you identify. Third and quickly, we talk about the future of false teachers, and this is just severe. He says every tree in verse 19 that doesn't bear good fruit is going to be cut down and thrown into the fire. So Jesus is not playing games here. It's the same thing that we read earlier in the, the two roads. In, in that space, what we see is that one of them leads towards destruction. And when it comes down to the next two teachings, are you putting your hope in what you're doing and what you're believing or in what your relationship is? He's going to say, depart from me. I never knew you. When it comes to these two foundations, the one that's built on the sand has this great fall. It's four different ways of saying the same thing. But if you're trusting in something other than Jesus for your righteousness, you end up in hell. You end up destroyed. You end up depraved. You end up depleted. You, you end up broken. You end up in spaces where your heart is distant. Jesus loves us enough to even give us this kind of warning. Even though false teachers are often attractive and powerful and influential, they promise us things that we want and long for. He gives us this warning, hey, stop and consider what happens down the road as a way of awakening us to our need for hearing truth and being oriented around God as the one true God. So that's the future of false teachers. Let's just talk for a second as we close about how to protect against false teaching. So a couple things. I, I spent some time when I was on my COVID sabbatical. I had two weeks of just kind of chilling. I kept a lot of Zoom meetings because I was pretty responsible and a good person, but I was pretty low-key for a while. And so I spent some time just reading through what the scriptures say to pastors. I thought, I'm coming up on my one-year anniversary here. Let me just actually hear God's word kind of wash over me of what's required of me. What does God call me to? What what should I be focused on? There's so many things we could focus on as a church. God, what are you calling me to focus on? It was really instructive. And I just read through uh, the upper room discourse from, from Jesus with his disciples in the book of John. Read through Acts 20 as Paul's giving instruction to the Ephesian elders. Read through 1 Timothy and 2 Timothy and Titus. And I was amazed at how many times there's a warning against false teaching. That the role of the pastor is actually to put in front of the people this continual warning that there are lots of competing voices that don't just like offer you neat things. They actually offer you something that's deceptive and dangerous. And so I had this kind of like renewed desire to be the kind of pastor that would call out like specific lies that you believe. To actually be faithful as a shepherd and warn you of things 
that actually would harm you and would hurt you. And I prayed this week, like, God, do you want me to like, go after something specifically? And I think, actually, before I do that, God's calling us, actually, to recommit our hearts to hearing his voice in his word. Because God has actually spoken a truer and better word. There's a false prophet that stands at the crossroads of this narrow and broad path, but, but so does Jesus. Jesus' words are right there at this path, and he's the one telling us what God requires of us, what God wants from us. And so there's this call, I think, even as application of this text, to say that when I put myself underneath the teaching of God's word, it protects me against false teaching. This idea of there being more that I'm required of or less that's required of me actually gets fixed in the scriptures. As you read about both the love and mercy of God and his justice, as you, as you read about his, his longing to be gracious and his commitment to wrath for those who would push away from him, his, his astringent ethic towards holiness that actually leads to your freedom, you, you read about that in the scriptures, right? This community event, as we encounter God's word, actually begins to correct us and change us and help us. And there's something about knowing God's word that protects you against false teaching because it doesn't quite sound right. So when someone's telling you, hey, it doesn't really matter about that. God's a God of grace. He'll forgive you. Do it anyway. And you're like, well, there's part of that that really appeals to me. And I go, wait a second. That does not sound like God. Like the God I know is the one who says, hey, there's a road that leads to destruction. And if I'm stepping down that road, I'm actually in a dangerous place. I don't know if God says to flippantly just do something and ask for forgiveness later. I don't know if that actually sounds like him because you've heard and soaked yourself in his word. Maybe you've heard this illustration of like when they train people at the Federal Reserve to spot counterfeit, the way they train them is to spend time with real money. You've heard that illustration before? I don't know if it's actually true. It's a great preacher illustration though. But I thought like, hey, it's kind of crazy because money's always changing and sometimes it looks like play money. Like there's like new 20s. I'm like, that is, that can't be real. Like, no, that's totally real. So the other day I was actually at Aldi and Adrian went inside. I dropped her off because I'm a good person. And I parked the car, and I'm going to get the cart. So I pull a quarter out of my change dish, and I go to Aldi. So if you haven't been to Aldi, you're missing out, by the way. So the way they do their carts is you push a little quarter into a little, I don't know, a mechanism. It's brilliant. And this chain pops off the back, and you pull the cart. When you're done, then you just plug that chain back in, and your quarter kicks out. It's a money-saving device for them. I think it's kind of a fun game you get to play as you go into Aldi. Well, I grabbed this quarter out of my change dish, and it's a, it's a 2021 quarter. And it just felt like a little bit different. Not just shinier, it felt like a little bit smaller, to be quite honest. So I get up to the cart, and I try to push my quarter into the thing, and it, nothing happens. So I'm like cramming it in, and nothing happens. And so I take the little, little tool thing, and I use that to cram the quarter in. Nothing happens. It won't, it won't pop out the backside. I'm like, well, that's weird. This one's just broken. So I go from that cart over to the next row of carts, and I do the same thing. Take my little shiny quarter that I think is probably just a little bit too small. It just feels a little different than regular quarters do. So I put it in the little mechanism and nothing happens. And I'm pushing, pushing, pushing. Nothing happens. And I pull a little tool out and I push it on there. Nothing happens. So I go inside all the cart lists and we're buying like turkeys and ham. So now my wife and I are like holding these things. Uh, And my doctor's put me on a nothing higher than a milk jug rule. So I'm actually in a bad spot. So I'm holding turkeys, holding hams because we can't get a cart. And I say to Adrian, strangest thing. I think the new quarters are smaller than regular quarters. Like I try to go in the cart thing. I told her my, my tale of woe with the two different carts and how it won't go in there. And I think it's just a little bit smaller than other quarters. And she just like looks at me like, I don't even know what you're talking about. Kind of cackles and laughs a little bit. And I kind of keep thinking about it. And I'm like, well, what about like 
all the vending machines. If the quarters are now smaller, and it makes sense. I know there's a chain shortage. I'm sure the supply chain of precious metals. And maybe they thought if we just shave a little bit off of it, like it'll be more effective and we could actually have smaller quarters. But I'd start thinking about the catastrophic events at laundromats when these quarters don't work anymore. Like, this is actually where my mind is going. So in the car on the way home, I'm telling my wife, man, this is bananas to me. The Federal Reserve is shrinking the size of quarters. And she's just like, are you, I can't tell if you're serious or not. And I'm dead serious. The whole time, I think this quarter is smaller than regular quarters. How else can I explain my deal at the cart there and the way that it actually looks and feels? It just felt different to me. Okay, she's very patient with me. We get home, unload all of our turkeys and our hams, and then I have to go prove to my wife that the Federal Reserve has done something different with our coins. I go to this little change basket, pull out a coin. You know what? Exactly the same size. The old coin is exactly the same size as this new quarter. And I've lined it up, and I'm like, maybe it's thinner, maybe it's more. It's exactly the same size. And I kind of laughed, and I had this illustration of counterfeit money in my mind. And I thought, oh, man, it wasn't until I laid up this new thing next to what I knew was real that I was actually convinced that this thing was okay. It wasn't until I took what I had newly experienced and put it up next to what I actually knew to be reliable that I felt comforted. My wife couldn't tell me anything. I'm sure there's like, there's nothing you could have said to talk me out of this conspiracy of the quarters in 2021 until I put it up next to an old quarter. So I thought about this illustration of counterfeit money. I don't know if that's actually a true illustration or not, but there was something about putting this new thing next to something that was reliable, that was really, really helpful for me. And in that moment, here's the preacher turn, God's word is reliable. It's ancient and orthodox. It's been tested and proven. And I know, I know, I know, I know, I know, I know, I know there's a modern voice that says to you, you need to update it. Like we should probably change it a little bit. It's probably not the right size that we actually need. We should do something a little bit different than we've always done with the word. In fact, can't we look back through history and see all the things that have happened that people have used the Bible to do heinous things? Surely you know we need to edit it and change it. And actually, I wonder if what God's calling us to this morning is not to put ourselves over the Scriptures as the ones who better understand, but to put ourselves underneath the Scriptures as those who desperately understand their need to hear the voice of God. Believing that there are actually false prophets that are super compelling, that actually call out to us things that we wish were true, that we actually want to be true, but they're just not. They appeal to things about our sensibilities, about what we deserve, about what will make us happy. There's things that actually we've heard our entire life that lead us down towards destruction. And the protection against false teachers is settling into God's word. So one of these passages that I read was Acts chapter 20. Paul is giving these instructions to the Ephesian elders. And he actually says this profound thing. He says, I am innocent of your blood because I've not held back from teaching you the entire counsel of God. That's a jarring verse. But he says, hey, my job is to protect you, and I've done that because I taught you what God's Word says. And then he gives some instructions to them to watch their life and their doctrine, right? Because we have, like, teachers in Christianity that are teaching good doctrine, but their lives don't match. So he gives this instruction to watch your life and watch out for those who are in your care. And then he gives this warning about false teachers. They're going to creep in from both inside and outside. You have to be on guard. And I take from that passage that the protection we have against false teachers is actually the word of God. To set ourselves underneath its authority, to learn it and know it, so that we hear both the love of God 
and the holiness of God. So we hold on to his, his nearness and his otherness, that, that he is the, the creator and that he came to us, that he wants to forgive, but he, he demands a sacrifice for sin be paid, which puts us into a spot where we can actually trust the one true God, because the scriptures give testimony to God himself demanding justice and holiness and righteousness. And the way he accomplishes that is by standing in our place on the cross to bear the penalty for our sin so we can be forgiven and set free. So the one who's giving you this word far from taking from you or wanting to deceive you or wanting to harm you is standing in your place on the cross, dying the death that you deserve. You can trust him. He's not asking something of you that he didn't actually already provide for you. What he promises is that he will be enough for you and you put your hope and your faith in him. I think actually taking communion every week is a way to guard against false teaching because it reminds us every week that what Christ has done is sufficient for me, that he loves me, that he is beautiful, that he is extravagant in his grace, and he promises to change me, he promises to transform me, he promises actually to change my heart from the inside out so that I can actually pursue Holiness. There's something complex going on as I think about trusting the broken body and shed blood of Jesus that actually transforms and changes me. So, so I want to put that in front of you as the hope that we have against false teachers to hear the God of this word who John says the word became flesh and dwelt among us. He's actually the true vine. In the passage before, he, he's the narrow gate that we enter from John chapter 10. He is the firm foundation that we can build our lives upon. Friends, you can trust him, and trusting him is how you resist false teaching. So let me call us now to actually take communion together as an application. Just spend some time believing and trusting and looking to Jesus as the one who died in our place. So if you're a follower of Jesus, I'd invite you to take communion. There's these little cups. There's some at the front if you didn't grab one. Also some in the back. There's a little wafer in there and a little bit of juice. The wafer represents the broken body of Jesus and the juice represents his shed blood. It is our hope as followers of Jesus of how we actually put our confidence in him and in his word. If you're not a follower of Jesus, I would invite you just to stay in your seat and pray. There's some prayers in the back of that bulletin that you were given that would help you kind of cry out to God and ask for his help. Ask him to speak to you. Don't take communion if you haven't taken Jesus yet. Just pray in that space and ask him to speak to you. Hey, because you've lived maybe 20, 30, 40, 80 years, and you've heard lots of competing voices about what's true about you, what's true about God, about what you need. So maybe you just take this time to ask God to speak to you clearly about what is actually true and what you can hope in. Let me pray for us. We'll take communion, and then we'll sing a little bit more. Jesus, thank you for your word. Thank you for your warning. And thanks that you didn't just teach us things. You actually embodied them. And then you used that body to die in our place in ways that we could be forgiven and free and reconciled to you. So would you stir our affections towards you, our confidence in your word, and our belief that you have everything we need, even while we taste this little wafer and let this juice come into our mouth. Would that sweetness remind us of who you are? So minister to us now, I pray, now as we take communion and then as we sing. In Jesus' name, amen.